Welcome back to The Reeducation. Nearly 50 years ago, a Senate Select Committee saved the Republic from a shadow government that had been violating our laws with impunity. In this special episode, I look at the moment when the American deep state was exposed. My guests are Jim and Thomas Risen, the authors of a new biography of Frank Church, the senator who forced the CIA, the FBI, and the NSA to reckon with a history it had hoped would stay secret. Keep it locked. This episode shines bright. Today's show is about a moment in time, 1975, when the Senate uncovered government crimes, lawless surveillance, and attempted assassinations, all hidden from the American people and Congress for nearly 30 years. We will meet a red-pilled senator from Idaho, a pain-in-the-ass reporter from Chicago, and a quiet warrior priest racked by Catholic guilt. We will see how human folly and institutional hubris led to a season of unprecedented disclosure. It's the story of when America's elected state forced its deep state to come clean. But before we do, I want to define our terms. What is the American deep state? So when I use the phrase, I'm referring to a national security bureaucracy that between 1941 and 1975 operated in near total secrecy with no real oversight or accountability from our elected government. This show endeavors to explain how and why that changed in the year after President Nixon resigned from office in disgrace. Now, I realize this concept, a deep state, is often linked to unprovable conspiracy theories. It is an amorphous hive mind that acts in lockstep. Well, that is a fiction, because the deep state of the early Cold War in America was still fraught with rivalry. There were differences of opinion, rule followers and rule breakers, even a few dissidents. But sometimes it's nice to have an amorphous they. I mean, I get it. A good they can help make sense of great national traumas, like the assassination of John F. Kennedy or 9-11. The real culprit in this case is not Lee Harvey Oswald or Osama bin Laden. They did it. The state within a state that our leaders cannot control and the public is not allowed to see. Well, I hate to disappoint, but this is not a podcast about that kind of deep state. It is nonetheless a cracking tale. So let me make a pitch to all the beautiful minds and dot connectors out there. The real history is scandalous and shocking enough. It will scratch your itch. I know, because I have the same itch to find riddles wrapped inside enigmas. The story of the church committee is one of the most underrated dramas of the last half century. First of all, three witnesses to that committee were murdered during the investigation. Two mafiosos and a Chilean diplomat. There are mind control experiments and a lab filled with vials of cobra venom and shellfish toxin. There are break-ins and buggings and a secret station at JFK Airport to open mail from the Soviet bloc. There are wild assassination plots, including a CIA mafia joint operation to kill Fidel Castro. That all really happened. And we know it happened because in 1975, a Democratic senator from Idaho named Frank Church led an investigation that exposed all of this paranoid duplicity and made it a matter of public record. Here is Frank Church, 48 years ago on Meet the Press, warning that Big Brother would be watching all of us if we do not watch him closely. We have a very extensive capability 
of intercepting messages wherever they may be in the airwaves. Now that is necessary and important to the United States as we look abroad at enemies or potential enemies. We must know. At the same time, that capability at any time could be turned around on the American people. And no American would have any privacy left, such as the capability to monitor everything, telephone conversations, telegrams, it doesn't matter. So Frank Church made those remarks in the midst of the most consequential reckoning in the history of the U.S. intelligence community. His name will forever be linked to that extraordinary moment when Americans learned what their deep state did in the shadows. My life, my life, my life, my life in the sunshine. Everybody loves the sunshine. Sunshine. How do we get all that sunlight? Well, I would say that the story begins in 1971, because that's when the New York Times and later the Washington Post published a top-secret history of the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War, known as the Pentagon Papers. Now, we've talked about this on the show before. This study, commissioned by former Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara in 1967, was devastating because it exposed repeated lies from both Democratic and Republican administrations about the war in Vietnam. It was not on a glide path to victory. The American effort to prop up the government in Saigon was not bearing fruit. We were not bringing democracy to Vietnam, really. Indeed, the U.S. was deeply involved in the military coup that displaced the repressive DM regime that U.S. policy had propped up in the first place. Now, what makes the Pentagon Papers different is that the damning documents went straight to the press this time. The man who leaked them, Daniel Ellsberg, who died this month at age 92, initially tried to interest Senator William Fulbright, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, in the papers. But Fulbright ended up doing nothing with this explosive information. He locked the file in a vault, and nothing changed. Well, here's Ellsberg in 1971 explaining why he then leaked the secrets directly to the New York Times. I took the responsibility on my own initiative of delivering to the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee of the U.S. Senate, O.R., the information contained in the so-called Pentagon Papers, including the several studies on negotiations which have not been given to any newspaper. I could only regret that I had not at that same time released that information to the American public through the newspapers. I have now done so. Now, the significance of this, as we will see, is that the Nixon White House enlisted the CIA in its own scheme to expose Ellsberg after this leak. And that's a big deal. It was the first big reveal of what some have called the season of inquiry. These Pentagon Papers, a period between 1971 and 1975, when you could say that Congress and the press stopped being polite and started getting real with the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies. Apologies to my Gen X era MTV watching listeners. In the early 1970s, the American system of state secrecy was entirely upended. I mean, there was obviously Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers, but there were also peace activists, college professors, progressives who called themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI. And these were the anonymous burglars who broke into a satellite FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, and stole the first files that exposed the FBI's domestic spying on the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers, and even Martin Luther King. 
There was CIA officer Philip Agee, who left America and treasonously published a book and founded a magazine dedicated to blowing the actual cover of his former CIA colleagues overseas. And there was, of course, the Watergate scandal, which brought down President Richard Nixon. Today, the Watergate narrative is about a president that bent the spy agencies against his political opponents. The deep state, in a sense, is the hero of that drama. The deputy FBI director, Mark Felt, a deep state figure if ever there was one, well, he was, no pun intended, deep throat, the secret source for Woodward and Bernstein's exposés that ultimately forced Nixon to resign. The CIA eventually also told Nixon no, but before they said no to Nixon, they said yes. That brings things back to Mr. Ellsberg and the unit of former spies and G-men working on behalf of Nixon's White House known as the Plumbers. These are the guys who would eventually stage the Watergate break-in. But the unit got its start with an attempted burglary in 1971 after that big Pentagon Papers leak of Daniel Ellsberg's psychiatrist office in California. The CIA provided the plumbers with disguises and special equipment to alter their voices, as well as a psychological profile of Ellsberg. Now, at the time, no one was the wiser. A couple years later, though, the Senate Watergate Committee would find out all about it. How often does the CIA help out former employees in the <clears throat> loan of equipment, as in the case of Mr. Hunt? Well, I can only say, Senator Gurney, that this was an extraordinary exception. And it was done because we had been asked to do it by the White House. Has it ever been done before, to your knowledge? Not to my knowledge. So that was former CIA Director Dick Helms, by then ambassador to Iran. And he was in the hot seat before the Senate Watergate Committee. The senators wanted to know how and why the CIA under Dick Helms would assist the White House with an operation to spy on an American citizen this case, Daniel Ellsberg. It was a new experience for the CIA. For nearly 30 years since its creation, as I said earlier, the agency had never really received any kind of serious scrutiny that it was clearly going to have to endure during these Watergate hearings. After all, this was the biggest story in the world. The whole country was hooked. Believe it or not, there were scalpers selling tickets just to sit in a Senate gallery and watch the hearings in person. Celebrities attended. John and Yoko attended a couple of these, and the networks ran wire-to-wire -wire coverage during the day. So soap opera fans did not get the chance to watch their stories when Watergate was on the air. Now, all of this put the CIA in a real pickle. If Americans came to believe that the agency was willing to help a Republican president spy on Democrats, it would lose its legitimacy in a heartbeat. On the other hand, no CIA director can survive without the president's trust. And to illustrate this, just consider... Helms's relationship with Nixon's predecessor, Lyndon Baines Johnson. After the CIA correctly predicts that Israel would launch and win what's known as the Six-Day War, Johnson invited Helms to attend a weekly Tuesday lunch with his administration's top national security leaders. And from then on, Helms was in like Flint. And those were the days for Richard Helms. He was probably never going to get a fair shake with Richard Nixon, though, because Nixon held a grudge. He held a grudge against the CIA that went back to the 1960 election. Now, I got into this story in more detail in part two of Bobby Kennedy and his enemies. I recommend it. It's one of our best. 
But to sum up, Nixon really believed the CIA must have briefed Senator Kennedy during the election on the operation that eventually became the Bay of Pigs. That was when Cuban exiles living in America combined forces with the CIA and tried a kind of amphibious land invasion of Cuba only to be gunned down by Castro's forces who clearly knew they were coming. Now, Nixon knew about the planning for this operation. He was the vice president at the time, but he couldn't say anything about it because the whole scheme was a state secret. So Kennedy attacked his administration for being soft on Cuba and then recommended something that sounded awfully similar to what ended up becoming the Bay of Pigs. And Nixon just had to take it in those debates. So by the time Nixon comes into the White House in 1969, he was determined to ride herd on what he would call those clowns at Langley. Nixon wanted to bring the agency under control of the National Security Council and specifically basically put Henry Kissinger in charge of approving covert action by creating this intergovernment committee that would approve it, even that Henry Kissinger would effectively control and manipulate. He also wanted to slash the CIA's budget. Now, at first, Richard Helms is a very astute political operator. He wanted to appease the White House. And that's probably why the CIA assisted the plumbers in the Ellsberg op. But Watergate, well, that was a bridge too far. The problem for Helms, though, was that even though the CIA formally didn't want to have anything to do with that break-in of the Democratic headquarters, most of the plumbers were retired CIA officers. So here's Helm again at that Senate Watergate committee hearing trying to explain how the agency didn't have anything to do with Watergate. McCord was a former CIA agent. Hunt was a former CIA agent. Uh, Martinez was on retainer at the time of the break-in. Now, that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Breaking and entering and not getting caught is a very difficult activity. And for it to be done properly, one has to have trained individuals who do nothing else and who are used to doing this frequently and are trained right up to the minute in how to do it. Was McCord in that category? Obviously not. Well, obviously there. So Helms's argument here that the CIA was not in on the Watergate break-in was true to a point. The agency wasn't in on the break-in, but Nixon did his best to recruit the CIA into the cover-up. And at first, and we're talking the first initial days after it, you know, Helms kind of went along with it. He stalled the FBI investigation into the break-in. But he was only willing to go so far. The president wanted the CIA to take the fall entirely for the, for the ordeal and to pay off the Watergate burglars in exchange for their silence. And Helms said no. So Tricky Dick decided it was time to play some hardball. And here is one of the smoking gun Nixon tapes from Watergate. It's June 23rd, 1972. That's six days after the plumbers were arrested. Dick Nixon instructs his chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman, to bring in Director Helms and remind him that the White House has, quote, protected Helms from one hell of a lot of things. And in that, what he was really getting at was the Bay of Pigs, which was a huge CIA blunder. But he could have had Helms on any number of other things, in the same way that Helms could have had Nixon on any number of things. For example, Helms lied to Congress about the CIA's role in kind of political warfare and eventually a military coup against Salvador Allende, the socialist president of Chile. We should say that Allende ended up killing himself in that military coup with a pistol that was given to him by Fidel Castro as his government fell to a general named Augusto Pinochet, who was in contact with the agency. Here is Tricky Dick on tape.
Haldeman did have that meeting and Helms shot back. And here I'm, I'm quoting this from Richard Helms's memoir. The Bay of Pigs hasn't got a damn thing to do with this, apparently, is what Helms said. In 1988, several years after all of this, Helms told an interviewer that the CIA could have done as Nixon wished, but didn't. Quote, we could get the money. We didn't need to launder money, ever. But the end result would have been the end of the agency. Not only would I have gone to jail if I had gone along with what the White House wanted us to do, but the agency's credibility would have been ruined forever. End quote. Dick Nixon, not pleased. So after he wins re-election... In a landslide, I might add, in 1972, he fired Richard Helms and made him ambassador to Iran. It is what it is what Don Rumsfeld, who was also in the next administration, would call a fuck off assignment. Now, Nixon would nominate a technocrat, a guy by the name of James Schlesinger, to replace Richard Helms at the CIA. After he is confirmed, Schlesinger arrives at Langley on February 2nd, 1973. And we should say that by all accounts, James Schlesinger is a brilliant man. He earned a PhD in economics from Harvard University in 1956. He was the director of strategic studies at the Rand Corporation, and he chaired Nixon's Atomic Energy Commission and was an important player in determining national security budgets and his roles at the Office of Management and Budget. All of this before being sent to the CIA, and he's a young man in his early 40s at this point to boot. Anyway, Schlesinger, consummate insider. The guy would serve as both Secretary of Defense and Secretary of Energy later on in the 1970s. Now, Jim Schlesinger believed that his job was to cut the fat at the CIA, reorganize the intelligence community, so that it was all under one director and accountable directly to the president. And he thought he was selected to this job because of his deep knowledge of government and national security budgets. Nixon, however, just wanted a loyalist to protect the White House from blowback on Watergate, which was becoming a huge scandal. So Schlesinger, I should say, for all of his brilliance, and this guy is off the charts smart, didn't have this street sense, what the Yiddish would call the sechel, to know he was chosen because his predecessor wouldn't do the president's bidding. Now, it's not an enviable position for anyone in this job in 1973, because by the time that Schlesinger is at the you know headquarters desk at Langley, the Senate Watergate Committee really is in full bloom. It has got its sights set on the CIA. It's a factor that's often forgotten in the history of Watergate. So just to give a flavor of what Schlesinger is dealing with in this moment, I'm going to play a snippet of testimony from E. Howard Hunt. Now, he ended up being sort of the director of the plumbers. But he was a retired CIA officer, a fascinating guy, by the way. Hunt is a longtime friend of William F. Buckley, who was briefly in the CIA, and he ended up becoming like a spy novelist, too. So here he is in this hearing. He's wearing sunglasses indoors, and Hunt acknowledges in open testimony here that the CIA had been conducting domestic intelligence operations for some time. Take a listen. CIA is by statute precluded from involvement in domestic affairs and even in uh, uh, non-domestic activity within the confines of the United States, according to one reading of the statute. Can you honestly say that in view of all the things I've described to you, that the CIA was not involved in domestic activities? 
No, sir, nor can I say that the uh, CIA has ever stayed out of domestic activities. Well, that's a PR poop storm. Between moments like that and the news that the CIA had aided the White House operations against Ellsberg, Schlesinger was furious. And I think anybody would be furious. He takes this job and it seems like every other day he learns another bombshell about something that happened to the CIA that was illegal or part of this Watergate scandal that he himself had nothing to do with, but the agency that he was leading seemed to be involved with. So at this point, Schlesinger decides, you know what? I want to know everything. No more surprises. So on May 9th, 1973, CIA Director James Schlesinger makes the following historic order. It is an order that changed the course of American history. So I want to quote it here. Quote, All senior operating officials of this agency to report to me immediately on any activities now going on or that have gone on in the past which might be construed to be outside the legislative charter of this agency. I hereby direct every person presently employed by the CIA to report to me on any such activities of which he has knowledge. I invite all ex-employees to do the same. Anyone who has such information should call and say that he wishes to tell me about, quote, activities outside CIA's charter, end quote. Okay, so sometimes in life, the most brilliant people do something that is moronic. And, you know, think of like Mark Zuckerberg turning Facebook into a VR company called Meta. This is one of those times. I mean, the CIA routinely breaks the law of countries where its operatives conduct espionage, sabotage, and all manner of skullduggery. Asking such an agency to put in writing its past crimes is like asking your neighborhood drug dealer for a receipt for that eight ball you just purchased for the weekend. I am reminded of this memorable scene from The Wire in season two. Rival drug dealers in Baltimore establish a kind of cocaine-heroin cooperative, and they run their meetings according to Robert's rules of order. I will let Stringer Bell take it from here. Motherfucker, what is it? The Robert rules say we gotta have minutes for a meeting, right? He's the minutes. Is you taking notes on a criminal fucking conspiracy? What the fuck is you thinking, man? So Schlesinger had the good fortune to get another promotion as Nixon's government unraveled. And I mean, this was a very good fortune because you got to understand, two months after he issues that memo, Nixon makes him secretary of defense. The man who replaces Schlesinger was a CIA lifer by the name of William Colby. Okay, so on the surface, William Colby, well, he looks like a lawyer spy. He trained to be a lawyer. I mean, consummate prep. Horn rim glasses, slick back hair, parted on the side, Brooks Brothers suits. Beneath that surface, though, Colby was a soldier. In World War II, he parachuted behind enemy lines in Norway as a member of the CIA's predecessor organization, the Office of Strategic Services, or OSS. And he helped organize a Norwegian insurgency. These are the guys, by the way, if you see these old pictures from World War II, that like they're on skis in the snow and they have like a rifle. And I think probably this kind of stuff might be like a predecessor to the Winter Olympic sport of the biathlon, which involves shooting and cross-country skiing. In the 1950s, Colby's back in his kind of suit and tie. He's operating out of Rome and he's handing out big bags of cash to the Christian Democrats in Italy and helping to make sure non-communists win elections there. And then during the Vietnam War, starting as early as 1958, Colby becomes advising the CIA and begun working the CIA operation in Vietnam, where the goal of the U.S. policy is effectively 
to prop up a South Vietnamese government that is going to resist the communists and the communist insurgents known as the Viet Cong. Now, by the 60s, Colby is back and he runs something that's really one kind of an infamous chapter in CIA history known as Operation Phoenix. And that really was a dirty war of assassinations against the Viet Cong, where he was effectively training up a South Vietnamese, call it a death squad. And it's really some of the nastiest, one of the nastiest chapters of U.S. involvement in Vietnam. Okay, so one might think a guy like that would bury, burn, or shred the reports that Schlesinger ordered. Certainly, a guy like Richard Helms would have made sure those memos disappeared. Indeed, it was Helms who had most of the files that documented the agency's LSD experiments, something known as MK Ultra, that he had them burned before he left the agency as for his post in Tehran. But William Colby was not Richard Helms. He did not cover up the memos Schlesinger ordered. He compiled them into a massive internal file, nearly 700 pages, known colloquially at Langley as the Family Jewels. Now, I just want to say something here about the deep state. If the deep state operated, as I said, like a hive mind or always sort of in the same direction, then you couldn't account for somebody like William Colby deciding to actually memorialize the past crimes of the agency when he did have an opportunity to basically put this stuff in a memory hole. So that's an important point to make. Anyway, these family jewels, they were a ticking time bomb. Sooner or later, a journalist would find them and have the scoop of the century. Well, a journalist did get a hold of those jewels. His name was Seymour Hirsch. Understand I'm just trying to be the daily scoop. Now, this is 1974. At this time, Cy Hirsch, he's a tornado. His first great get was breaking the My Lai massacre story in Vietnam, when GIs led by Lieutenant William Cowley lined up women and children in a ditch and opened fire. It was a massacre and a war crime. Anyway, Cy Hirsch gets that story with a combination of what we would call shoe leather and moxie. Hirsch found out that there was a soldier who was charged by military police for killing more than 100 Vietnamese civilians. So he went from army stockite. Basically, he went to every U.S. military prison he could find, just trying to find the man who was being charged for the massacre. And military police at these bases were instructed to keep Cowley away from reporters, generally speaking. So Hirsch would occasionally have to run out of administrative buildings, fearing a senior officer would figure out who he was. That's how dedicated Cy Hirsch was to finding William Cowley. Anyway, eventually he found Cowley's lawyer, and then he found the man himself. And in those days, I would say, you could not stop Cy Hirsch. You could only hope to contain him. Milai eventually got Cy Hirsch at first a job with The New Yorker and then an offer from the old gray lady herself, The New York Times. And by 1974, we should say that Cy Hirsch enjoys a special relationship with New York Times editor A.M. Rosenthal or Abe Rosenthal. Both the editor and the reporter respected one another for sure. But they also annoyed the hell out of each other. When Hirsch was younger, Rosenthal ignored his entreaties for a job at the Times and asked if he could make a source available to his paper for the Me Lai story instead of running the scoop from Cy Hirsch, which was being put out on a smaller kind of news service. It's important to remember here that Cy Hirsch was, and I mean this as the highest praise, a pain in the ass. You could say it was a superpower because Hirsch loved what we call the doorstop. That's when a reporter camps out home as of a senior official. He used to collect military phone books and track the personal addresses for senior officers. Hirsch would call a secretary of defense or a CIA master spy late into the evenings on their home numbers. He just didn't care. 
When Cy Hirsch was giving Woodward and Bernstein a run for their money on Watergate, and he did break a lot of those stories, especially once he got on the story in 1973, Rosenthal once said that Hirsch was like a puppy who wasn't housebroken. But as long as he was pissing on Ben Bradley's carpet, he didn't care. Ben Bradley was the editor of the Washington Post at the time. So Cy Hirsch, well, he had insiders feeding him on the family jewel story for more than a year before he pulled the trigger. You know, one source was Bob Kiley, who in the 1960s infiltrated anti-war organizations for a guy named Dick Ober at the CIA, sort of running a, an initial version of this anti-domestic spying program. And Kiley's an interesting figure because he had a second career in Boston politics where he rose to become deputy mayor. Hirsch also got a lot of help from a guy named Lucian Nedzi. He was the congressman who was the chairman of a House subcommittee on intelligence. And, you know, Nedzi, fascinating figure in this period because he really played all sides. So here's a guy who would be briefed by Bill Colby on the family jewels, but he was also a source for Hirsch. All the while, Nedzi would tell Colby about what he was hearing Hirsch would be working on. Anyway, eventually Colby himself would confirm this whole thing for Hirsch. So everybody's kind of playing angles on it. They're like, on the one hand, they're having conversations with one another. They're saying, oh my God, how did Hirsch find that out? How did he do this? On the other hand, they're secretly helping him. So I, I love that sort of stuff. According to Tim Wiener's History of the CIA, Legacy of Ashes, Cy Hirsch finally got his interview with Colby at CIA headquarters on December 20th, 1974. So Bill Colby, who secretly taped that conversation with Cy Hirsch, tried his best to talk him out of writing it. He said, I think family skeletons are best left where they are, in the closet. That's Wiener quoting Colby from the transcript of the secret conversation with Hirsch. Well, anyway, Cy Hirsch in a 2011 documentary made by Bill Colby's son, Carl, well, he, this is his version of events with his talk with Colby. He did see me and he didn't lie to me. What he did was if I said there was I, at least 120 cases of wire breaking, or wire ta wiretapping of American citizens on uh, contrary to the law in, in America, he said my number is only 63. There was a question of numbers. He did not back away from the question of wrongdoing. And so that's one hell of a story. Okay, so after Colby confirms the whole thing, Hirsch heads straight to the Washington Bureau for the New York Times, sits down, starts writing his masterpiece. There was only one problem. The New York copy desk only had enough space for 2,000 words. And Hirsch needed more. A lot more. He appealed to the night editor for more space. They couldn't do it. So Cy Hirsch decided to bring this to the top. The first thing he did was find Rosenthal's home number. It's now 2 a.m. and Cy is desperate to get the editor-in-chief on the phone. Abe's wife, Anne Rosenthal, answers the phone after it rings for a while. And now I'm going to quote from Cy Hirsch's 2018 memoir, Reporter. Quote, I apologize for calling. Told her who I was and said, I needed to speak to Abe right away. Well, she said, with much bitterness, you've called the wrong person. Abe's left me. You'll have to call him at his girlfriend's house. I staggered into a soap opera. I mumbled something and hung up. End quote. Okay, so we're talking about Cy Hirsch, one of the most persistent reporters in the history of journalism. He was not going to give up that easy. So he calls back, asks Anne Rosenthal again if she knew the name of the woman her husband had left her for. And she let him have it, but eventually came up with a number. Hirsch at this point calls the girlfriend's house. It's now closer to 3 a.m. The phone rings and rings and then cuts off. He calls again. Abe's girlfriend finally picks up. Now I'm going to quote again from reporter. Quote, I said very quickly, I don't care what the hell is going on there, but you've got to tell Abe Rosenthal that Cy Hirsch is on the phone and needs to talk to him urgently. 
There was no response, but she did not hang up. Do it, please, I said. A minute later, Abe got on the telephone. He was very angry, and I didn't care. I interrupted his bitching to say that this fucking newspaper had its head up its ass, and I had been told there was enough space for the CIA story. How much do you need, he asked. I said at least seven or eight columns, 7,000 or more words. What's your phone number, he asked. I said, what number? Numbskull, he roared. The phone you're using in the office. I gave the number to him, and he hung up. A few moments later, Abe called and said, I want you to know that tomorrow's New York Times will have an extra page in every one of its 1.6 million copies. On one side will be a house ad and on the other side, your cockamamie story. End quote. Isn't that great? Anyway, that's why I love history. I should say that Cy Hirsch does run hot and cold. He's had a long career. I like to compare Cy Hirsch to the great New York Yankee and Oakland A slugger Reggie Jackson. A lot of strikeouts, but when he connects, boy, he's making history. So I would just say, if you want a critique of Cy Hirsch's, let's say, war on terror era journalism, read my dear friend Jamie Kirchick's 2014 essay on this topic for Commentary Magazine. But this podcast is really about a time when Cy Hirsch got the goods, and oh, did he have those goods. They were blared across the December 22nd, 1974 Sunday front page of the New York Times. It read, huge CIA operation in U.S. against anti-war forces, other dissidents in Nixon years. It was an earthquake. Well, the guts of that scoop detailed something known as Operation Chaos. Initially, chaos was a CIA program approved by President Lyndon Johnson and later Richard Nixon to determine if the Soviets, Cubans, or Red Chinese were supporting the American anti-war movement and other domestic radicals. There was Project Merrimack, which sent agents to infiltrate U.S. anti-war groups when they traveled abroad. And there was Project Resistance, where CIA officers worked with college administrators, local cops, and campus security to identify radicals. The targets of chaos included... Students for a Democratic Society, which was a new left organization that eventually would splinter in 1968, with one branch becoming the radical terrorist known as the Weather Underground. Other targets included Ramparts Magazine, which is sort of a radical journal that had first exposed the CIA's clandestine funding of cultural organizations in, back in 1966. Other targets were the Black Panthers and a street gang known as the Young Lords. The CIA, for a brief stint, even spied on B'nai B'rith, the Jewish community organization. Okay, so the agency's surveillance and infiltration of these domestic organizations was only one facet of the family jewels. But what a facet it was. There are a few things the CIA's charter prohibits. At the top of that list, spying on American citizens. And yet, here the agency was, running informants, bugging and wiretapping Americans. As Hirsch writes in his 2018 memoir, Reporter, as I learned more about the agency, I'd become convinced that Nixon's responsibility for the Watergate break-in was perhaps merely a footnote to the real criminality of my government. Well, I want to linger on that quote for just a moment because I think it really is important and it emphasizes what I've been talking about here, but the two narratives about the deep state. So we just described CIA domestic spying. Okay, the program was in response to direct orders initially from President Johnson and then President Nixon. And on the surface, it would look like kind of a classic example of what we'll call the Watergate narrative. That's when a U.S. president asked the CIA or the FBI or the NSA or some military intelligence agency to violate their charter or violate U.S. law. And, you know, again, you have the sort of, you know, the national security bureaucracy 
and it is being abused by the elected leader. So that's that's the the Watergate narrative. But then part of the stuff that was uncovered was something known as HT Lingual. Well, what is that? That was a program that began in 1952 to secretly open pieces of mail sent to Americans from the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact countries. The CIA would steam open envelopes at a special facility at the JFK airport in New York and later in New Orleans and San Francisco. And initially, the post office agreed to this CIA program, but subsequent postmaster generals were completely unaware of the operation because it was such a state secret. So it started off as a program that you could say at least the Postal Service knew about and maybe President Eisenhower had some idea about. But over time, not even the postmaster generals knew about it because you got kind of like one-time approval, but it was never reopened again. So that's an example, I would say, of the other deep state narrative, which is that you've got this national security bureaucracy that is doing things without even the knowledge of the leader of the executive branch. Because what we find out is that President Richard Nixon himself did not know about H.T. Lingual. Now, that to me, this is, this is where it gets very interesting. Now, we all know this because of a young Nixon staffer named Tom Charles Houston. A little background on, on Tom Charles Houston. He was one of the villains in the Watergate plan because he was somebody who was trying to get the U.S. intelligence agencies, including the CIA, to basically adopt more aggressive measures to monitor domestic radicals in the United States. And he was trying to push through this to the FBI. We talked a little bit about this in an earlier episode, I think, in OG Man, because what ended up happening was J. Edgar Hoover didn't like it because it was taking power away from the FBI, basically, to do all that kind of domestic intelligence activity. So Hoover didn't like it and kind of had a showdown with Nixon, forcing Nixon to back off because he wanted basically to get Nixon to sort of say in his own words, directly ordering him to participate in it. And Nixon was smart enough to know that he didn't want to leave that paper trail. Anyway, that's probably not a fair, in my view, to Tom Charles Houston. And let me explain why. Okay, because there was a real threat in 1970, first of all, when it came to domestic terrorism. There were more than 1,200 bombings, I think, between 18-month period between 71 and 72. And, you know, you could argue that this was a response to trying to get a handle on what was sort of a wave of domestic terrorism. Now, this now will get back to the point about the two deep state narratives. So Watergate hearings in 74, Houston is the villain because he's pushing the deep state to do something that at least the FBI for the moment didn't want to do. But in the church committee, it becomes much more interesting because what Houston says in his testimony and it's supported is that he recommended something that was almost identical to what is H.T. Lingual, the opening of mail from the Soviet bloc. And in these meetings, the CIA's representatives, they pretended they were not doing that in the first place. So if you can imagine saying, you know, I want I want to make sure that the CIA, you know, is, is opening the mail. They had a program that existed in opening the mail for the last 20 years. And the CIA guys in the meeting saying, OK, take notes. That sounds interesting. Let's go back to you, blah, blah, blah. So here's a young Senator Gary Hart during these church hearings asking Houston why the CIA bothered with this charade. I just want to play this clip. You've indicated that uh, after the fact, you found out that many of the agencies that were on that interagency task force were using tools that uh, they were sitting there discussing White House approval for obtaining. Uh, why do you think they were they were going through this charade? <laughs> I wish I knew. I don't know. All right. Now let's get back to Cy Hirsch, because the revelation that the CIA had been spying on Americans at home, well, it rocked the nation's capital. It rocked the country. Normally, the week of Christmas is kind of a dead time in Washington, D.C., 
President Gerald Ford, at this point, was already on vacation with his family at Vail, Colorado. But Ford's young chief of staff, Donald Rumsfeld, name I'm sure everybody remembers from the Bush years, who was with the president on that ski trip, immediately saw trouble with that Cyhurst story. The White House was now in damage control mode. Rumsfeld first instructs the CIA director, that's now by this point William Colby, to respond to the allegations in Hearst's story within 48 hours in writing. Colby was to send his memo about the Hearst story to Don Rumsfeld's deputy, a 33-year-old staffer from Wyoming you may have heard of, Dick Cheney. Now, Cheney would, of course, go on to become a congressman, secretary of defense, vice president, oil company executive. But as a young staffer, he understood that Hearst's story could not be ignored. And here I want to read from Jefferson Morley's biography of CIA spymaster James Jesus Angleton, The Ghost, quote, Hirsch's reporting was read with appalled interest on Capitol Hill, in newsrooms and in living rooms precisely because it documented allegations of surveillance and infiltration that the government had long denied. In this crucible, Dick Cheney grasped that the issue was neither simply one man nor the spying on Americans. At stake was the power of the president to use the CIA as an instrument of national policy as he saw fit. End of quote. So Cheney got to work on a White House strategy for managing the scandal. The plan was for President Ford to take the lead and get out in front of it. This was the only way that, at least Cheney believed, to stave off congressional investigations that a weakened White House could not control. So Cheney turned to a tried-and-true technique for slow-rolling national scandals. The Blue Ribbon Commission. Ford agreed. He appointed his vice president, Nelson Rockefeller, along with many other conservative areas, including Ronald Reagan, who would put a scare into Ford during the 1976 Republican convention, to a special commission to study intelligence agency abuses in the wake of Cy Hirsch's big scoop. All right. So remember, the Times at this point only had a few of the family jewels, so to speak. The full story would turn out to be a scandalabra. Colby's full file documented the detention and mistreatment of a Soviet defector for more than two years named Yuri Nosenko. In fact, when I say mistreatment, there's credible evidence you could say the man was tortured. It would detail all kinds of CIA assassination plots from Cuba's Fidel Castro to Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. The agency's experiments with LSD on unwitting subsects was also among the family jewels that risked exposure. And the working assumption now was that more dirty laundry would get out, or even worse, Congress would start asking lots of uncomfortable questions. So Cheney gets Ford to invite old A.M. Rosenthal and a few other New York Times editors and reporters to a White House lunch to tell them all about how the allegations raised by their newspaper would be examined by the Rockefeller Commission in full. So this was on January 16th, 1975. Notably missing from this powwow, Cy Hirsch. Big mistake. So at this point, we should say, Gerald Ford is an accidental president. And, you know, he was not elected in 1972, even as vice president, because back then Spiro Agnew was Nixon's running mate. And Ford, who was a reliable Republican in Congress, had been on the Warren Commission that looked at the JFK assassination. Well, he was chosen to be the vice president after Agnew had to resign in disgrace following his own corruption scandal. In this respect, Ford was a contrast from the corrupt administration he replaced. Now, that would be a considerably good thing. But he also had a bad habit of mangling his words and appearing overall an unsteady presence in a very chaotic time. I want to play just a brief clip from the first season of Saturday Night Live that illustrates how Gerald Ford was sort of teased. Because this is the last of these historic debates, we will begin with our national anthem. I can name that tune in four notes. No, no. 
Star Spangled Banner. No, Mr. President. No? The Battle Hymn of the Republic? How about I Gotta Be Me? Okay, so that, that was Chevy Chase, by the way. President Ford, only in office a few months, remember Nixon resigns on August 8th, 1974, is now in the middle of a generational reckoning over CIA, NSA, and FBI programs that he was only just learning about himself. And that's very important. It's not like Ford, you know, if, if this was Nixon who would be dealing with this, Nixon, like, you know, knew a lot about this stuff. He had been in the office for a while. Ford had only been in the office for a few months. Okay, so that's the context of that fateful lunch at the White House with the Times editors. The key moment is when Rosenthal asks a fairly obvious question. Why did Ford choose all of these conservatives for the commission to explore intelligence abuses? So Ford answered that he chose people he could trust to keep secret programs that should stay secret, secret. Makes sense so far. And then Rosenthal, being a terrific newsman himself, asks, like what? And Ford lets the cat out of the bag. Like assassinations. Okay, so then Ford backs up and says that the last remark that he made about the assassinations, well, that's off the record. It's off the record. And this, of course, presents a dilemma for the Times men. On the one hand, the president of the United States just confirmed that the CIA had plotted to kill foreign leaders, and I can't think of a bigger story than that. On the other hand, Ford put it off the record. Their reputations as journalists required them, you would think, or at least some would argue, to keep that secret. One of the Times journalists in the meeting, a columnist by the name of Tom Wicker, urged the group they had to at least tell Hirsch what they had just learned, because Hirsch was their guy. He was on the story. Rosenthal, would, you know, he hemmed and hawed. I think he was conflicted. Wicker takes matters into his own hand and tells Hirsch on his own. And here is Wicker from his own 1978 memoir called On the Press. Quote, it's intolerable that the American government should sponsor such criminal and indefensible acts as political assassinations, and I saw no reason why the New York Times should protect Ford against his own disclosures of such acts. If the people had a right to know anything, surely they had a right to know murder was being done in their name. End quote. So, Wicker briefs Hirsch. And now Hirsch has a minor dilemma. He could have pursued that story himself, but he suspected he would run into resistance, maybe not from Rosenthal, but other editors. There would be this whole thing about like how to phrase things because of the off-the-record thing they agreed to with President Ford. And it would just be a huge hassle. So Cy realizes that he really can't write it for the Times. It is a great job, obviously, writing for the New York Times. So what does he do? Well, he does the same thing that Wicker does. And he leaks it himself. He leaks it to his neighbor, a CBS reporter by the name of Daniel Shore. Game on. President Ford has reportedly warned associates that if current investigations go too far, they could uncover several assassinations of foreign officials in which the CIA was involved. Now, one can imagine a young Dick Cheney banging his head against the wall. The Rockefeller Commission was supposed to be, in the parlance of the Watergate era, a limited hangout. The report would cop to some of the bad stuff in the family jewels. Not all of it, though, and especially not assassinations. Now, I, I want to just point something out here. Why are assassinations so incredibly sensitive in this moment? I mean, there's the obvious answer, which is that it's a huge embarrassment. It's a violation of international law and all of that. But there's a very personal answer right now that's very unique to this moment in time in American history. And that is, we're coming out of the 1960s. President John F. Kennedy is assassinated. His brother Robert Kennedy is assassinated. Martin Luther King is assassinated. There were assassination attempts against Gerald Ford. If it gets out that the U.S. government is also trying to kill foreign leaders, well, one could argue that it invites a similar kind of retaliation. And that is one of the reasons why it is so incredibly sensitive. Now, I should say, the Rockefeller Commission did end up confirming most of this 
Operation Chaos Scoop from Cy Hirsch. It also discusses other embarrassing episodes, such as the CIA's bizarre quest to create a mind-controlled drug, which we talked about briefly earlier, called MKUltra. The final report, however, did not include a chapter on CIA assassination plots, even though this was in the file known as the Family Jewels that Colby had compiled way back in 1974. Now, that does not mean that the commission, though, did not write such a chapter. And this is a fascinating part of the story here. Again, illustrating that the idea of a deep state operating in lockstep is just not true. And that it, these are institutions, even if they're secret institutions, with lots of people in them. So just like you have Colby, who would take a different approach than Helms, you also have this guy, David Balin, who is the executive director of the Rockefeller Commission, who takes a very different approach than Dick Cheney. And he fought like hell to include the assassinations in the final report. Now, he ended up losing, but he ended up also writing that chapter. And he, in the process of his own research, learns the CIA has its own secret inspector general, again, disproving the sort of hive mind thesis, that conducted a study of assassination plots and concluded they were not effective. Okay, so at one point, you know, Balin threatens to go public. There's a great chapter, by the way, that gets into this in the Risen's book that I recommend everybody should go out and buy. And anyway, but Cheney had the final cut. He had the final edits, and he wins that battle, but he was about to lose the war. Do you remember your President Nixon? Do you remember the bills you have to pay for even yesterday? That was part one of Church and Deep State. We will be releasing part two of the monologue next week. Now, please enjoy my interview with James and Thomas Risen. Well, right now, the re-education is so fortunate to have father and son writing team Jim and Tom Risen to discuss their new book, which is a biography of Senator Frank Church and his extremely important work in 1975, chairing the Church Committee, which uncovered for the first time, really, some of the darkest secrets of the U.S. intelligence community and national security state. Thanks, both of you, for coming on my podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks. All right. So I want to start off, let's just sort of chronologically, either one of you can take this. But tell me a little bit about sort of a young Frank Church as, you know, I guess you could say he was a gifted military intelligence officer in World War II. He he's a guy from Idaho. What kind of guy was this guy who kind of, you know, emerged into, you could say, Idaho politics as something of an intellectual, certainly a Westerner? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, Frank Church was born in Boise, Idaho his, in 1924. He was a really the, the son of a shopkeeper and the grandson of the chief assayer of Idaho in the gold mining fields. Idaho, most people don't remember, had a gold rush after the California gold rush. And he was real, his family was really not that remarkable, but he was a remarkable boy almost from the beginning. He was seen as the smartest kid in school from almost from the first day he went into school, 
one of the most remarkable things he did as a young boy when he was still in middle school or junior high school. He published, he had a letter to the editor published in the in the Boise newspaper supporting and defending William Bora, the senator from Idaho, who at the time was one of the leading isolationists in the country. And then later, when he was in high school, he won the national oratory contest of the American Legion, which at the time was a really huge competition, debate competition. So he, from the beginning, he was a great speaker and was a, was kind of destined for great things. Everyone in I, everyone in Boise who knew him thought special. He went to Stanford and then joined the army in World War II and became an intelligence officer in the army in China near the end of the war. And that had an important effect on his understanding of the world. He became very disillusioned by the Chinese nationalist regime of Chiang Kai-shek, which he thought was corrupt and incompetent. And that later influenced the way he looked at American foreign policy, especially the Vietnam War. He, was, he suffered cancer in, when he was young, survived cancer, and his survival of cancer and the threat of death convinced him to run for, to take big risks in his life. And he ran for Senate in 1932, when he was only 32, in 1956. And he won and became one of the youngest senators in American history. And in 1957, when he joined the Senate, he was a kind of a conventional Cold War Democrat, at the time, in the late Eisenhower administration, the Democrats were trying to out hawkish over the, even more hawkish than the Eisenhower administration. And he was a friend of John F. Kennedy's, who was a senator at the same time, and he supported Kennedy in his run in 1960 for president. And so it, when Kennedy became president, it was the first person, first friend he had in the White House, and it changed his life to have, to be so close to the president of the United States. Maybe one of you could talk a little bit about the tension between the fact that he had, I guess he had a, a picture of Senator William Bora of, of Idaho, who was this isolationist, also somebody who opposed the anti-lynching legislation, and yet Church himself was a great supporter of civil rights, and as you said at the time, kind of a cold warrior. How did he, you know, because he always sort of said Burroughs one of his role models and one of his heroes. How did right. he square that circle? I think it was kind of a hometown well, one, hero from Idaho. Okay. One of the things that we found in the book was that there's a lot of evidence that his talk about Burroughs was a facade and he didn't really mean it. He was, when he was young, he really looked up to Burroughs. But as he got older and as he learned more in the Senate about what Burroughs really did, he found with along one one of his oldest aides told me that he found out about Bora's corruption early on when when the church got to the Senate and he was disillusioned with what Bora really had been in the Senate. I think it was the hometown hero. Like there's a description of when he sees this massive parade funeral for William Bora and he's like, Wow, this is impressive. It's Idaho. We don't see this every day. And so that really stuck with him. And it's important to remember some context like Corruption in the Senate used to be far more common. So Bora was not, you know, he was kind of not unusual, but not normal either. And, you know, Democrats were 
hawkish on the Cold War by the, by 1957 when he joined the Senate, in part because, and this would inform Kennedy and Johnson and Nixon on Vietnam, is that Truman was unfairly blamed for losing China, quote, is the way that they said it. But there wasn't a whole lot he could do. And Church knew that. He'd been to China and he'd seen Chiang Kai-shek should have won. He had international support. He had a lot of money. He had the resources. He was far, far but he was just incompetent. Like there's an example where he floods the Yellow River and all these people die because he's trying to block the, you know, he made horrible strategic decisions and, you know, but there wasn't a whole lot Truman could do. But Johnson was terrified that if he pulled out of Vietnam, he'd be crucified like Truman was. So that's... I mean, Lyndon Johnson here, right? Yeah. 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 Right. So that's kind of like uh, where, where anyway, he is in 1957 when he joins. Yeah, I want to get I want to get to the opposition to the Vietnam War, but I'm just yeah. trying to, yeah, that, that that's that's helpful. I just find it interesting because one of the themes that I'm getting from the book is that Senator Frank Church was somebody who was able to kind of have competing things in his mind at the same time. He was somebody who was able to live with certain kind of paradox and tension, whether it was, you know, his kind of personal doubts, you could say, about American empire as they come throughout the 1960s and yet still supporting a lot of the stuff, a lot of the initiatives that, you know, kind of were part of that, you know, to... I mean, I think he, he he had a view that he was sort of a gentleman and wouldn't use certain kinds of opposition research. You tell a great story that he knew about one of his opponents had blackmailed another senator, forcing him to maybe you want to tell maybe one of you want to just sort of tell that story because I thought it was so I didn't know. Yeah. It. I thought it was great. I mean, really yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. He ran in 1956 church when he ran for Senate for the first time. He was running against an incumbent Republican named Herman Welker who was really Joseph McCarthy's closest ally in the Senate at the time. Welker, in order to defend McCarthy, had sought to blackmail one of McCarthy's biggest opponents in the Senate, Senator Lester Holt from Wyoming, who was a Democrat. And what happened was that Holt's son was arrested in Washington for solicitation for homosexual solicitation by an undercover D.C. police officer. And what was common at that time was that cases like that would be dismissed. But Holt, I mean, Welker found out about Holt's son and went to the D.C. police and insisted that they prosecute the case to the fullest extent of the law. And then he went to Holt and threatened that unless Holt quit the Senate, he was going to blast the news of his son's arrest all over Wyoming and destroy his life. And so Holt went to his office and shot himself. And a case was written about by Drew Pearson, who was a gossip columnist and a quasi-investigative reporter at the time. But very few other people in Washington and the press wrote about it. And Church knew about it, and his staff put together a pamphlet attacking Welker for the blackmail scheme and for other things that he had done. And Church read the pamphlet and said, no, I don't want to, I want to destroy all these pamphlets. I, I want to win on the issues and not through mudslinging. And so he ordered that all the copies of his opposition research pamphlet be burned in a bonfire before his behind his campaign headquarters in Boise. And it was, to me, one of the early signs that Church was, was a, tried to be an honest man. That Lester Holt suicide inspired the book Advise and Consent, actually. 
So it, it later became kind of a political thriller and very dramatic entrance onto the Senate. So even before he gets to the Senate, Frank Church has quite an amazing life. I just want to ask, though, was that the honorable thing to do? Welker was a dirtbag. I mean, one of the worst. <laughs> didn't right. he deserve, I mean, didn't the American people to a certain extent or the Idaho voters deserve to know what kind of, you know, scurrilous character this guy was? That's a good question. I mean, you could debate the whether or not opposition research has a real valuable role in politics or not, I guess. Yeah. For Church, it was, you know, you got to get back into the mindset of how campaigns were run back then. You know, opposition research today is common. Everybody used it. Right. Back then, it was, it was a little less common. It was still used, but it wasn't quite as widely accepted as it is today. And it was, you know, elections in Idaho and small states like that at the time were fairly genteel affairs. And the interesting thing about Idaho back then was that it was sort of a swing state. It was, today it's ruby red state, but back then Democrats did quite well in Idaho. And so Church, I think, believed that he could win without it. I'm not sure what he would have done if he thought he didn't have a chance to win with it, with, unless he used it. But I think he was fairly confident that he could win. Tom, you want to add anything on that? or I think that he was also worried maybe he wouldn't look, you know, he didn't want to look too aggressive on that. You know, he thought, okay, if people find out about it, fine. But if I'm the one who tells them about it, maybe they'll look at me a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah, it, it was a, yeah, it was, it was not, it was considered tawdry to to stoop to those levels back then. No, I just thought, I thought it was a fascinating kind of insight into who he was and how he thought about things. Yep. And he had that, you know, you talk about his reputation. Sometimes he was called Senator Cathedral because right. he was so high-minded and he was he would always give these like, you know, perfect diction, you know, speeches in the Senate. Right. And so I want, now I want to, you know, because we're, you know, we only have so much time. I want to kind of get now to his big breakout moment. It's 1975. But before we get to 75, I want to get your analysis, feel free, either one of you, about there are a lot of things that happen from, let's say, 71 and Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers to the formation of that church community. And one of them is Cy Hirsch runs the family jewels story, which right. is itself an amazing story about, you know, how Colby wanted to know everything, you know, all the nefarious deeds of the CIA. And it ends up that Hirsch gets the scoop of the century there was the break-in in Media, Pennsylvania, of the FBI annex by this group of Quakers that, you know, we, we, Hoover was going crazy before he died trying to find out who they were. That eventually led to the, you know, sort of disclosure about what was known as Pro, which is this domestic spying right. program. So talk about that kind of period. And then there's, of course, Watergate. So this period right. of great scandal that leads to a point where we could even imagine having a bipartisan Senate committee that would actually right. look at the darkest secrets of the intelligence community. Yeah, I think the the, the mid-1970s, I think, in, in retrospect, is a, was a real progressive era of reform that nobody has kind of picked up on. Oh, it, it doesn't have a great name like the New Deal or the Great Society or whatever. It's, but it was a real era of reform. And I think it started because of disclosures about law enforcement and intelligence, both the FBI and the CIA. <laughs> you mentioned the Medea, Pennsylvania break-in. One of the things that was interesting about that, that was a group of anti-war demonstrators who were, wanted to find out what the FBI was doing. And so they, they 
burgled the uh, suburban Philadelphia office of the FBI just in the middle of the night and just took as many files as they could get. And then they started doling them out to reporters and members of Congress anonymously. Reporters would get these packages in the mail anonymously. And those stories began to reveal the extent of the FBI's operations against anti-war dissidents. And then Watergate happened, and the, that overshadowed everything else, all of the other in investigations that were beginning at that time. And that you know, that, the Watergate break-in happened in 1972, then the Senate investigation of it happened in 1973, and the FBI's investigation of Watergate happened. And finally, in 1974, uh, Nixon resigns. And Cy Hirsch, who was an investigative reporter for the New York Times, was in, was investigating Watergate, and then he broke away to investigate the CIA and its abuses during the Vietnam War. And in December 1974, he wrote, I think, the biggest story of his career. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. The CIA's domestic spying on anti-war demonstrators and civil rights activists, and it led to, directly to the creation of the Church Committee in January 1975. And Talk a little bit about uh, what that story was. It was, why was it called the Crown Jewels or the Family Jewels? Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, during Watergate, if you remember in, in the midst of Watergate, there were questions about the CIA's role in Watergate. And CIA officials had to testify about what the CIA's role had been. But they had not told the full truth about what the CIA really did in, in Watergate. They had claimed that we had nothing to do with it, that we fought, we pushed back against the White House efforts to drag us into this cover-up. But in fact, the CIA had been involved in logistical support for the White House plumbers who were involved with Watergate. And when... James Schlesinger, who was a newly appointed CIA director, found out about this in 1973. He began to demand that all CIA officials tell him everything that might be a problem or might be a scandal that they had done previously, not just things about Watergate, but he wanted to get a handle on everything. What did we ever do that might come out that might be considered illegal now or a scandal. And I want a, a report about everything. And that report was called The Family Jewels. And it was kept secret inside the CIA. Nobody had copies of it outside that. It was never designed to be published. It was just designed to let the CIA director know what might come out eventually. But as with any report that was so radioactive, eventually people began to talk about it. And Cy Hirsch began to hear bits and pieces of it. And the biggest piece that he had was about domestic spying. But, that, but that, those reports actually was, that was the blueprint in some ways, you could say, for the church committee, right. at least for, right. the, for, the, for the CIA oversight, right? Because it was also assassinations. It was all kinds of other things that were included eventually right. in this incredible right. I mean, is there an element here, I, I, again, to both of you, but I actually, let me, let me put this to Jim. I'm sorry, Tom, I'll, I'll get to you in a second. But you're a, you're a legendary 
intelligence reporter and, and covering the intelligence community. There's something kind of crazy about having a memo documenting things that the CIA never wanted to be attributed to the U.S. government, right? I mean, it's kind of nuts, right? Yeah, and everybody everybody besides Schlesinger thought it was nuts at the time. Yeah, <laughs> talk a little about that. Yeah, yeah. He was he was an outsider. He had come he had come from the Energy Department. Uh, Nick, everybody in America, in Washington hated Schlesinger. He was kind of considered, you know, a crank and a curmudgeon. And he only stayed at the CIA. He only came to the CIA because Nixon, when he got reelected, wanted to fire Richard Helms because he didn't think Helms was his man. He wanted somebody who would be a, his hatchet man at the CIA. And so what he, he appointed Schlesinger, Schlesinger to be CIA director, mostly in order to fire a lot of people. He went there as Nixon's hatchet man, and his mandate was to cut heads, chop heads all over the CIA because Nixon thought they were disloyal. Biggest firing in the history of the agency. Even more than Stansville Turner? Yeah, probably. Yeah, I think okay. that, 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 he started, yeah, he, the, the way he started, I don't know if he, the numbers actually were bigger, but that was what he was there for. Right. And then he gets there and suddenly Watergate is blowing up and he sees that the people have been lying to Congress about the role of the CIA and he he, he feels exposed, like suddenly I'm in here, I don't know what I might be held liable for. And he wanted to, to find that out. And then Nixon's the Watergate scandal got so bad so fast that Nixon moved him out of the CIA and made him defense secretary. So he was only there about three months. And then William Colby came. And Colby is like like an OG when it comes to the CIA. Yeah. He was there when it was OSS. Right, right. And so Schlesinger was only there a brief time. And one of the only things he really did was fire people and demand that... Please put all of your crimes in writing. Expect, right. expect your memo by the end of the week. Right. And so it was sitting there, you know, Colby arrives and it's, this thing is sitting on his desk waiting for him to do something. Wow. Just it's, anyway, I, I think it's an incredible story. And I agree with you. It is the greatest scoop that Cy Hirsch ever had and a very, very important one. How did the family jewels memo then spur both the Senate and you could say the Ford administration to say, all right, we got to we got to like look at all this stuff. Talk a little bit about that. Well, it was Cy Hirsch's story. Yeah, right. I think it was also Locke Johnson in his book about the church committee, which is like all the external facts, like who was in it, data, all yeah. that stuff. He calls it a season of inquiry. And I think that's an apt name for... To yeah, Yeah, absolutely. because it is a perfect storm. Vietnam has ended with America not losing its first war, but losing a very public war on TV for the whole world to see. Well, and also, I, I should just say, we now also have the first big scandal of that, which is the Pentagon Papers showed that the U.S. was behind the the coup in Diem and, and things like that. So it was like, you know, there was already, the Vietnam War was also caught up in all this, right? I yeah, mean, and I, Andrew Hoover just died after four decades right. running the FBI and its predecessor, and everyone was scared to death of him. So now that he's, he immediately, they pass term limits on the FBI director, immediately yeah. after he dies. And so everyone says, oh, Mike Mansfield's been waiting to investigate for years, and you know, now the Senate Majority Leader in the 70s, he's ready to do something because Hoover's gone. 
And there's is like everyone talks about the 70s like it's this crazy that 70s show days and confused. Everyone's trying to escape. That's the late 70s after everyone did all the hard work of trying to hold the government accountable. That's kind of exhausting. Democracy takes work. So by the late 70s, everybody's kind of checked out and really fatigued. But there's this period where Frank Church comes along and it's the season of inquiry. Everybody's finally ready to ask questions in a way that people really never had before. Like you didn't see investigative journalism like dad would have been completely out of place in 1965 when people believed everything the government told them. Well, there yeah, I, were, that, I mean, there there were there were some hard hitting stories, but it was different. I think mostly right even yeah. if the reporters didn't believe it, their editors did because they wanted connections and whatever. It was just very yeah, it was a huge shift. Drew Pearson wasn't always great, but he did get he did get stuff out. Jack Anderson. I mean, there were people who in that period did important work for sure. to held the government accountable. But I generally agree with you that it was a huge culture shift. I think the, I think the. From, as you said, from the 1971 through 75, you had a whole series of disclosures, the Pentagon Papers, the Medea Papers, the Watergate, and that whole, and then the end of the war. By the way, would you put Philip Agee in that category too? Inside the company is 1975, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. And uh, so I think that you had a whole period of disclosure that, where people were, were, as Tom said, finally willing to ask questions right. in a way that they'd never been before. And a lot of people originally thought that the church committee was going to be like Watergate 2.0, and it, and it became something very different. Well, I think in the, it, it, it exposed much more in a lot of ways, you could say. Yeah, yeah I think, it, in my opinion, the church committee has had a much more important legacy historically than, than Watergate. Yeah. I want to, one other thing about the formation, and I want to get to the actual thing, but pretty extraordinary that Barry Goldwater, Mr. Conservative, is a member of that. How did that happen? Because here's somebody, I mean, it was the Republicans, I mean, I keep going back to, like, if you read Rick Perlstein's book, the last people to defend Nixon, it's like Ronald Reagan. I mean, like, and, and it's, the, it's the American right that, like, loves Hoover till the end. They're defending right. the CIA. They support the Vietnam War. Barry Goldwater is one of their leaders, and he's on this committee. And how did that happen? And that's so important, I think. Yeah, I think one of the things that's really interesting is the bipartisan nature of the church committee and of the Senate and Congress at the time was so alien to what we have. Totally, yeah. You had Howard Baker, John Tower, Barry Goldwater were all on the church committee. And I, I, you have to credit Mike Mansfield, who was the Senate Majority Leader. The Democrats had just won a landslide victory in the midterms of 1974. That's right. Yeah. They had a 60-vote majority in the Senate, and they had like 294 in the House, I believe. It was an enor enormous majority in both the House and the Senate, but there was a Republican president. And so you had a situation where the the Democrats could do pretty much whatever they wanted in the Senate. But Mansfield was really an old school guy who believed that the an, an investigation of the CIA and the Intelligence Committee would not be credible unless it was bipartisan and unless the Republicans could be brought along. And it was so he wanted to make sure that both parties bought into it to some degree and he and even though they had a 60 vote majority in the Senate, he made it so that there was only one more Democrat right. than Republican on the Senate, on the committee. And he gave 
for broad leeway to the Republicans to pick their own members. And Goldwater wanted to be on it, partly because he was really interested in these issues, along with Howard Baker, who had been on the Watergate Committee, who was also very, he, he wanted to be on it because he still had questions about the CIA's role in Watergate. And John Tower, who was the ranking Republican on the committee, was actually put there by Hugh Scott, who was the Senate Minority Leader at the time, in order to spy on Frank Church. That was his marching orders, he said later in his memoir. But in fact, he got along with Church very well, and the two of them began to meet jointly with the White House to force them to provide documents. One of the interesting things that we interviewed many, many surviving staffers and people who worked with the church committee, every one of them had said that Barry, even if they didn't agree with Goldwater's politics, Goldwater was polite and professional to work with. They all had good things to say about him. And it was a good working relationship. It was a very well-formed committee. And I think that it wasn't just a conservatism support of the CIA and the FBI. It was a very heavy deference to authority. Like I said, most people prior to the 70s just didn't ask questions about the government. You know, you just no, of course my authority figures are right. Yeah, of course. You know, this it's just kind of a generational thing. You know, I think that I think a big part of the cultural difference or the or the thing that informed the committee members was that almost all of them had fought in World War II. Yep. And they all I think my what I know of military veterans, and I think this was true with these guys, is they are, have a very pragmatic view of intelligence. And they're not awed or intimidated by the intelligence community. And I think that played a, a big role. The Republicans all, like the Democrats, had all been in World War II, and they, they knew what was good and bad about intelligence. And they weren't, they didn't see the CIA as some sacred institution that couldn't be touched. You know, they knew that if you didn't know what was what the guy, you know, what the enemy had in front of you that, that you could get killed, but they also knew that a lot of times the people, the people providing you the intelligence screwed up. And so it was, it was a very different time. It was a time when the CIA or the FBI, they weren't sacred cows to these people. All right. One more thing is before we get into the meat of what the church committee finds, and that is church himself, because by 1975, the view is 76 presidential election is wide open. Frank Church has a great reputation. You know, he wanted to run for president. He was looking into this, but he would not do it. He promises Mike Mansfield he wouldn't do it until he finishes this inquiry. So I think that that, it creates a kind of an opening for the critics of that committee in a way, which is, is this guy kind of trashing the reputation of the agency and and the FBI to grandstand his way into the presidency? Is he trying to protect other Democrats? Talk a little bit about those political considerations for the man who is leading this, you know, investigation. That was, that's the central problem of Frank Church's life was he became, he was radicalized politically by Vietnam. He came to believe by the, because of Vietnam, that the United States was on the verge of becoming a militaristic empire. And that was why he wanted to investigate this, the intelligence community. He believed that the intelligence community was part of this rogue state that was being developed. At the same time, this other half of his 
of him, of his personality. He was deeply politically ambitious and he wanted to be president or at the very least chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And so he constantly was had this balancing act in his own mind about how far to push, when to push. And then plus he had this other dynamic of he had to get reelected in this conservative state of Idaho. And so there were a lot of pressures on him. And when Mike Mansfield offered him the job of chairing the church committee, Mansfield said, you know, you, this means you're giving up the presidency. And Mansfield came away thinking that church had promised not to run for president in 1976. Church came away from their meeting thinking, I promise not to run until we finish the investigation. And so he had this loyally view of what he had agreed to and what he was doing, which the press had a field day with because they immediately said, oh, he's just doing this committee to run for president. And he never really could deny that, yes, I want to run for president. And so that was the central problem for the press coverage of church, that he was considered he was doing it for political reasons. And it was it was a real tragedy because I don't think he really was. I think there I think he was able to divide in his own mind both his political side and his the more radical side. And that's what makes him so interesting and so complicated, I think. Is is something that you don't see in America very much anymore. No, I- a politician who has like competing views in his own mind and continues to operate with these competing ideas. For sure. So now let's, maybe Tom, if you want to jump in here, let's talk about the top line takeaways. What did we learn from the church committee? I say that the, the moral is never, never be afraid to ask questions. You have a right to ask questions. Well, for, no, but I mean, I'm saying, you know, like, let's talk about Trujillo. Let's talk about Castro. Let's talk about the God, foreign leaders the U.S. government tried to kill. Patrice Lumumba. And also, let's talk about J. Edgar Hoover and spying on Martin Luther King. And I mean, there's a it, it is just packed. It's hard. I mean, as a as a I've been a, a news a journalist, you know, for more than 20 years. I've got to tell you, it's it's like I can I was only three when the church committee released its findings. But I mean, I'm trying to think, how would you cover something like this? This is amazing. I mean, it's like each there's so many revelations there. It's like 35 years worth of scoops. They could have done even more, but they had a time yeah. limit. I mean, I talked to some people who said, like, why didn't you? I, I said, why don't you investigate this? Why don't you investigate that? Because the staffers wanted to keep researching. But I forget, you know, he said, oh, we have to do hearings. We have to have public hearings and actually make a report because they had a deadline. They got an extension. But, you know, by a few months, they had they had to do something, you know, because they could have you know, there was so much dirty laundry that the FBI and the CIA had kept hidden from people because of that deference to authority. Like they just mystified everyone and said, yay, we're doing defending democracy and you don't have to ask any questions about what we're doing. So it was decades worth of, you know, abuses of power. Incredible. Yeah, I think they, they, they had to focus. That was the, the hardest part for the church committee was how do we focus? No one has ever conducted any oversight of these agencies before. And so they, as you said earlier, they focused first on the assassinations of foreign leaders, the CIA's plot with the mafia to kill Castro, Fidel Castro. Incredible story in and of itself. Totally crazy. At the same time that the FBI is stepping up 
it's under Bobby Kennedy. It's it's pursuit of the mafia. The CIA is aligning with the mafia. It's kind of amazing. Right. That was right. the top yeah, line but... story. That was the biggest story. And it was even there are questions that whether Frank Sinatra was involved briefly until it was real. He, you know, it was that was the biggest headline of the church committee, I, I think. One, yeah. Yeah. Judith and Campbell. Invest... Judith Campbell was another one. Right. Like incredible stuff. I can get into the details of the CIA's plot with the mafia are fascinating. Oh, amazing. Right? Let's talk about Robert Mayhew really quick. I mean, this, this, this is a yeah. fascinating figure. Yeah. Robert Mayhew was an FBI agent who got tired of working for J. Edgar Hoover pretty quickly and went out to become a private investigator And in the early 1950s. And what it turned out that a lot of former FBI agents had already gone to the CIA to work. And so he knew a lot of CIA people. And they hired him as a private investigator to start doing the dirty, the dirty work that the CIA didn't want to do itself. And one of the things that they eventually asked him to do was set up meetings between them and the mafia. Particularly a guy named Sam Giancana. No, John, John yeah. Roselli was the point of contact. Right. Mayhew, Mayhew, knew, he, Mayhew was one of those guys who knew everyone. And one of those people was Johnny Roselli. And he actually was friends with this guy. Johnny Roselli was also a big time fixer for the mafia. You know, the... You know, the, his power in the mafia was that he knew people and he was trusted by people. So he was like the messenger, like intelligence and crime both rely on a handful of people who know everything and pass messages between the people in power. And Johnny Rosselli was one of those guys. So it wasn't crazy that they s sought out the mafia because they had casinos in Havana. They knew people getting information is one thing, but asking them to kill a foreign leader is a step too far. So. They Mayhew, yeah, Mayhew was he had met Rosselli and knew him, and so he went to meet him in Los Angeles, asked him to get involved, and then Rosselli told him that he would have to get approval from other people, and so he went and met with Sam Giancana, who was the head of the Chicago mob. Giancana agreed to do to get involved, and then but he wanted to get Santo Traficante, who was the head of the mob in Florida, involved. And you have to wonder what the motivations of these mobsters was to work with the CIA when they were being investigated by the FBI at the same time. And it was clear that they believed that this would help get the heat off of them, maybe stop the FBI from investigating them. But it didn't, it did not do that. <laughs> the FBI kept, kept prosecuting. Well, when, when Hoover kept, finds out about this, this is before the yeah. church committee, he goes nuts and yeah. investigates. He, he wants to find everything there is about this CIA mafia thing. And, you know, it's more heat. And yeah. he hates the CIA. Well, the, oh, yeah. Well, that's a whole separate thing. Absolutely. He that's why he was one reason he was so interested. Yeah, exactly. A funny way in which the FBI found out what the CIA and the mafia were doing was that Sam Giancana, Johnny Rosselli, and Santo Traficante and Robert Mayhew all went down to Miami Beach and they set up in the Fountain Blue Hotel where they partied and drank and thought about how to kill Castro. And But Sam Giancana, his girlfriend, was a singer in Las Vegas and he missed her and he started hearing rumors that it was Phyllis McGuire, one of the McGuire sisters. And he started hearing rumors that she was sleeping with Dan Rowan who was a comedian who later became famous for Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In. I don't know if you guys you guys are too young to remember that show. Talk it to me. But, you know, 
uh, right. So Mayhew, in order to, he convinces Giancana to stay in Miami Beach and keep working on killing Castro, but he hires a private investigator to go to Las Vegas and wiretap Phyllis McGuire to see if she's really sleeping with Dan Rowan. And that he said, he tells Giancana, don't worry, I'm, I'm on this case. I'll find out the truth about what Phyllis McGuire is doing. And they, the, the investigators he hired were sloppy. And a maid at the hotel came in, found all their eavesdropping equipment, and called the police. And the police called the FBI. And the FBI, very the, the private investigator, very quickly flipped on Mayhew and said Mayhew hired him. And the FBI then immediately traced it back to Mayhew and then found out what um, well, Mayhew lies doing. at first. Yeah, Mayhew, Mayhew lies and first. says it was for a private client. And then after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, changes his story. And Hoover right. can't even believe it at first. And then the CIA right. then kind of back briefs him. And right. he's, he, Mayhew he can't believe it. He's like, I can't believe you guys are doing what? <laughs> like, Mayhew calls the CIA and says, that's right. Mind. Well, to, to cover for me, and they agree. They, they go to the FBI to try to stop them from, stop the investigation. And that all that does is it eggs Hoover on even further. And he, it was like pulling the thread on a sweater, and he finally pulls everything. And then, so, then eventually they find that Sam Giancana is sleeping with a woman named Judith Campbell, along with Phyllis McGuire, and that there's this phone calls between Judith Campbell and the White House. And then they put two and two together and they find out that President John F. Kennedy is sleeping with Sam Giancana's mistress. And uh, this is just like gold for J. Edgar Hoover. And he takes all the files on this and meets with Bobby Kennedy, who was then the Attorney General, and he meets in 1962. And he meets with Jack. John yeah. and the records of what they actually talked about are not known but there's plenty of FBI memos that suggest that Hoover confronted the Kennedys and would blackmail them I, I, Beverly Gage uh, I think is in her recent Hoover biography which is very good she, she, she's non-committal on whether it was blackmail but certainly there was a confrontation and Jack ended the relationship after the meeting in the White House with Hoover and then was furious at Hoover. Well, you have to. Argue, I, I would argue that it was probably implied blackmail. Okay, he probably said black, he said the word blackmail. But I think the implication is that very shortly after that, Hoover wanted to begin wiretapping. Martin yeah, Kennedy. let's talk about this. Yeah, and the Kennedys did not object. And I think there's many factors but i think that's the key thing that hoover got out of this meetings these meetings with the kennedys was there they did not resist when he began to go rogue on martin luther king and he, well okay so if i may i just want to very politely yeah. push back on one a few points on this sure. yeah and i'm basing this on gage's biography some of it is also on on, on tim weiner's stuff but there was very good FBI. FBI had that source called Solo, who was, I guess, his Jack Childs and his brother. And these guys were golden sources because they actually would occasionally even meet with 
Soviet premieres. They would be invited into the Kremlin. And they had it from Solo and other sources that one of King's important advisors, a guy named Stanley Levison, was a secret financier of the American Communist Party and had kept that information not only from the public, and, right. but also from King. Like King didn't even know. Right. And so the original right. plan, I think, was for the Kennedys to say, because they were allied with King. I mean, Bobby Kennedy probably is responsible for maybe saving King's life during the 1960 campaign when he got him out of that Georgia jail. That they, hey, you got to cut ties with this guy. And King, right. yeah. King didn't yeah. believe, didn't believe the information he was getting from the Kennedys, didn't believe the information from Hoover, just thought it was more McCarthyism. Just thought it was like, ah, you're trying to smear this guy. I know him. He's been good to me. And right. so then I think at that point, they didn't know what to do. And I think Bobby Kennedy, who himself was like clearly loved surveilling American citizens. I mean, like Bobby didn't have any compunction about a lot of, you know, wiretaps and break-ins and stuff like that. I think then Bobby's like, all right, well, we need to find out. We need to know. The really awful stuff that Hoover does with that information is after the Kennedys long gone. I mean, that's that's the only... Well, I think that, yeah, Levinson was clearly the, the center yeah. of this investigation. The problem was that no one at the FBI, inside the FBI, believed that Levinson was still a communist threat. They didn't believe that the intelligence showed that King or his organization were infiltrated by communists. And William Sullivan, who was the head of the director, he was director of intelligence for the FBI, repeatedly told Hoover in memos that there is no evidence to support the idea that Levinson is a threat inside the civil rights movement. And and Hoover continually pressured Sullivan and the people in the Intelligence Bureau of the FBI to overcome their own doubts and their own skepticism of the case mm -hmm. and continue to claim that the, that the King's group was infiltrated by the, by the communists. And there's a fascinating memoir that Sullivan wrote right before he died in the 1970s where he talks, details everything about they had on this issue and how they, there was never any real evidence of communist infiltration and that Hoover just refused. Well, I don't think there's any evidence that King himself was doing anything with... I do think that there was some... I mean, I have to go back, but I do think that Levinson... Well, Levinson had, clearly, Levinson had been involved. In the but no, it wasn't just historical. That he, was still, he was still doing things in terms of at least financing the American Communist Party. It doesn't mean, by the way, that that had any influence on King or the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And I think it's a, it's a complicated question. But that was... Well, I'm just saying that inside the FBI, no one believed Hoover's claims. Okay, that's important context. But so you think that Bobby was pressured. You don't think Bobby Kennedy... Bobby Kennedy was a real red hunter. I mean, he was he worked for McCarthy, but he headed the McClellan. He was the chief staffer on the McClellan committee. When he was in that job as attorney general, there had been it was before he, you might say he had his transformation, you know, as a mm -hmm. senator and came out against the Vietnam War. He was still very much the cold warrior. He was also kind of an opportunist. And I like yeah. I like Brian Cranston's depiction of LBJ, where J. Edgar Hoover shows up and says, here's a tape of King you know, sleeping with other women and having affairs. 
And Johnson's like, so what? This is the 1960s. This happens a lot. <laughs> and yeah. he's like, fine, whatever, spy on him, but keep it like he's like, who like I need to work with King. This is important. Don't get in his way. You can spy on him. He's never gonna know. That I think that's part of the equation is that Bobby and Johnson both thought, hey, he's never gonna find out. Why whatever. You know, whoever wants to do this, it'll get him off our backs. So so what so here's my question. Do you think that Bobby was Bobby just being taken advantage of by Hoover, or was this a? I think that I, you know, it's difficult to get into his mind. Yeah, I do believe, I do believe that the Kennedys became afraid of. Hoover okay. After because of Judith uh, Campbell, after he confronted them with, with the evidence that he had on Giancana and okay. Judith Campbell, whether that was the only reason they went along with the wiretapping of King. Is you know I guess it's open to debate, but I would I would argue that the timing is pretty makes sense that it was a it was a decision by the Kennedys that we're going to let Hoover do what he wants to do, not just on King but on other things. I think that I think King Hoover was afraid that he might get fired by the by the Kennedys, and I think this insulated him in a way that he he felt much more secure in his position. And as you said, he then the the odd thing is that the wiretaps never proved any communist influence, but they did show that he was sleeping. King was sleeping with other women, and they didn't miss a beat. They began to switch the focus of their investigation to his woman. Well, it's one of the lowest points in American right. modern American history is when they they send the poison right. pin letter, a terrible thing, by the way. And that on on that, I don't. Think there's no connection to the Kennedys. That was pure Hoover right. and Sullivan and you know Deke DeLoach and the top guys at the bureau to their discredit. Let's talk about right. just a moment, Sam Giancana, one of two murders during the church committee. What happened? Yeah, actually, to, there were I'm actually so sorry, three. three. You're right. I mean, we're going to get yeah. to the big scoop that you guys have in the book after this, which is Latalia, but yeah. I want to talk about Giancana first. Right. Legendary figure emerges as the as the sort of king of Chicago underworld, spends a brief respite in Mexico when he kind of gets out of the game for a little bit, comes back to Chicago after the Mexican authorities turn him over to the FBI and he's awaiting what happened with Sam Giancana and uh, do we have an answer to like why yeah. he was murdered? I got this. Yeah, Tom, so okay, Tom, Tom got all the police files. Yeah, Tom, go Giancana. ahead. Yeah, yeah, I've always been fascinated by the mafia and I was really eager to get into this. Is The thing is, you say he's the king of Chicago. He wasn't, actually. Is At the time, Al he wasn't. At the time, no, he was not. This is the thing. Is right. Al Capone goes to prison. His successors go in and his... So there was like a shadow power behind the throne arrangement with Paul Rica and Tony Accardo. These were like guys who had worked for Al Capone and they saw Al Capone giving newspaper interviews, being very public. And the lesson they learned was you can be famous or a criminal. You can't be both. Right. Sam Giancana tried to be both. And so Tony Accardo and Paul Rica said, OK, you're the, quote, boss now, but you're going to listen to us. You're the front man. If anyone goes to jail, it's going to be you, not us. And Tony Accardo never spent a day in jail. And he, one of the reasons he didn't is because he killed everyone he did business with before he died. And that's kind of what happened with Sam Giancana. Sam Giancana was a loudmouth, gave newspaper interviews. He thought, this is Al Capone all over again. And with Johnny Rosselli, too, like both of these, Johnny Rosselli wasn't as hated as Giancana was, but both of these guys by the 70s had outlived their usefulness. 
And they were just kind of a liability. So Tony Accardo thought, I have to bury my you know, connections. And so he buried them. So you're, you, you're, I, and that's, in, that's clear in the book. So you just think it's, it's Tony Accardo. There have been any number of conspiracy theories on this because it is awfully suspicious that as this man is about to cooperate. I think, I think that in my opinion, it's both that there were a number of reasons. I think the mob never kills somebody or doesn't usually kill somebody just for one reason. I think the problem with Giancano was that he talked too much, as Tom said. And one of the people he was talking to was the church committee. Right. And he was about to testify. He'd just been subpoenaed. As we talk about in the book, a church committee staffer was just about to fly out to visit him the day. An extraordinary. Was- yeah. And so I think that was part of that was a factor. It may not have been the only factor why he was killed, but I think the fact that he was he was talking, he was also testifying before a grand jury in Chicago. And then Johnny Rosselli had testified several times before the church committee. And I think he knew that that was sealing his death warrant. And he was also testifying before grand juries as well. And so I think that the idea that was, I think the reason the mob killed both of them was because they talked too much, including to the church committee. And I think they, they, the sad thing about Johnny Rosselli was that he was a flamboyant, colorful figure who testified at great length and was the star witness of the church committee. And he, he winds up dismembered, ch- stuffed into a barrel in Biscayne Bay. Yeah. I want to now these, are talk both about- ma- these are both made guys. So even if a Carter didn't yeah. do it, someone asked permission and he didn't say no. Yeah. I, 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 I want to just, I, I think it's important because, I mean, listen, you, you don't see any evidence that it was the CIA who wanted to kill these mobsters. No, it was the mob clearly did it, but it was also, I believe, in part because they were talking right. to the church. Okay. In addition to other people. Now let's talk about the big scoop. Or, I mean, I think you had a lot of good, but this is like a huge revelation, which I which I don't think had been reported before. I mean, we should let, let let's set this up with Letelier is murdered in Washington. Right by something known as Operation Condor, which is this, this is the dictator of Chile. Pinochet has a kind of special operation to go after, much like, by the way, we've seen with Russia today with dissidents. Condor was run by the CIA, by the way. They trained all the secret police in these countries. Oh, okay. No, no. Good point. So we should, but anyway, it was a murder in, in what, I guess, DuPont Circle. It's a murder in Washington, D.C. And this is somebody who was like, I guess, the former ambassador from to Washington from Chile, who was, and what you've revealed is that he was talking to the church committee. Big, big deal. And that had not right. been reported before. Yeah, Orlando Letelier had been the foreign minister in the Salvador Allende government. And then Allende was overthrown in a coup backed by the CIA. And he was in, living in exile in Washington and working, trying to get attention for trying to continue to oppose the Pinochet regime. And he was talking to the church committee staff about Chile and about what had happened because part of their investigation was about the covert action operation that the CIA conducted to help overthrow Allende. And he was murdered with a pipe bomb. And no one at the time knew that he was being interviewed or questioned by the church committee. 
And as you said, this is the first time that's been disclosed. Two committee members would go out to his house in Bethesda and talk to him privately. And he was never public witness to the committee. Well, that's... Now, he helped form their views on Chile and the covert action operation. What? I mean, I guess, what would you say is the U.S. government's responsibility for his murder in Washington? Henry Kissinger was in communication with Pinochet, right, right, Dad? Yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I found pretty disgusting, frankly, was there was some memos that discussed how Kissinger was meeting with the head of Pinochet's intelligence service and and the Chilean intelligence guy complained to Kissinger that that Letelier was talking to Congress. And that was right before the pipe bomb. I have such, bomb. It's so suggestive. I mean, you guys write it yeah. very carefully, but... Right. That's... Yeah, there's no, no proof that Kissinger knew about the, that the murder was going to take place. Right. But he certainly knew what Condor was and what Pinochet was. And the CIA and the, and the Ford administration and the Nixon administration before that were happy to continue to support Pinochet. Okay. I want to now get into, we have a couple more minutes left. I want to get into a few points. One is, where, where does the church committee come down? And where do you come down after writing this book, the two of you, on did American presidents, I mean, certainly I think Eisenhower, where what is the role of these Cold War presidents? Let's it's it's Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon. What role did they play in authorizing CIA activities such as assassinations? Or for that matter, what role do they play in terms of domestic surveillance of American citizens like Martin Luther King and anti-war activists? How much responsibility think- to the U to the president of the United States in these cases? It was a huge issue in the committee. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, that was the that was the one of the central issues that divided the committee ultimately along partisan lines. Was Church was convinced that there was no evidence, no conclusive evidence of presidential authorization for the Castro and other assassination attempts, and CIA officials kept testifying before the committee that yes, we were, we got at least indirect orders to to kill to kill Castro and all, all the other assassination attempts. If you read the and that became the, the, a big political issue between Church and Goldwater, frankly. Church came out with a statement where he said the CIA acted as a rogue elephant. And that phrase became a key talking point in the midst of the hearings. And Goldwater said Church, by saying it's, it was a rogue elephant, is clearly trying to protect the Kennedys because he was friends with John Kennedy. And he doesn't want to admit that John Kennedy could have ordered Fidel Castro's murder. And that became, that became the most partisan issue in the church committee. But if you actually read the way that the reports were written, the final reports on the assassinations, you come away th- it's obvious that the president's authorized and ordered them, and it's obvious that the committee knew and believed that they had ordered them. And the facts were, were clear. It was largely circumstantial, but it was clear. And 
church always continued to deny that. Right. And that was probably the biggest flaw, or the most valid criticism of his handling of the invest of the committee. But at the same time, he didn't stop the the staff from writing it in such a way that any any reader would come away thinking, yes, the president's authorized these things. Tom, what do you think? Research and history, the CIA, the agency doesn't the president doesn't always tell the agency what to do what to do, but when the president does do it, then the CIA will absolutely follow it to the letter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that was one of the things that I I came away convinced of is that clearly presidents Eisenhower and Kennedy and others authorized these assassination attempts. But I think they also allowed because the CIA was doing these big things that they wanted, they gave great leeway to the CIA to do what it wanted on other matters. And I believe that, for instance, Eisenhower turned really turned the CIA into a covert action weapon yep. beginning in the 1950s. And because they were willing to do that, to launch coups in Iran and Guatemala and Cuba, that he let Alan Dulles, the CIA director, do what he wanted with things like MKUltra, which was the LSD mind control experiments, which were so bizarre. So crazy. I love the, I love so, the detail, by the way, that the leader of the Winter Hill Gang, Whitey Bulger, was a yeah. was participating. It's like a, it's a weird like little moment in history. Like For you know. months, for like a year and a half. I know. <laughs> like, he was drugged every day for a year and a half while he was in prison. Amazing. Okay, so wrapping it up, I want to ask about sort of the leg in, in the legacy of the church committee. There were a number of reforms, obviously. And you talk about this as bringing the intelligence community under the rule of law, which I think is a very good way, succinct way to discuss it. But what does this tell us? I, I, I'm, I gingerly use the phrase because I think a lot of political figures like Donald Trump abuse the phrase deep state. But what does it tell us? Was there an American deep state for the first year, decades of the, of the Cold War? And today, are there perhaps needs for new reforms to try to get this behemoth under control and oversight of a Congress? Because it seems to me that even if the president knew, certainly Congress didn't know, certainly lots of other parts of the government didn't know, and the American people didn't really know. So how would you sort of address this question? Did the church committee expose a deep state and correct it? Is there need to do something like that now? Yeah, I think I think that's a great question. I think that it, I think it was on its way prior to the Church Committee. I think the U.S. Intelligence Committee, community, including mostly the CIA, was on its way to becoming a deep state. It had started in the as it you know created in 1947. Over those almost 30 years before the Church Committee, it had lost its way and gone into so many illegal and illicit activities with no oversight and no supervision and no clear rules at all that it had to obey, that it was a very dangerous entity buried deep inside the United States government. And I think it was because it had become a deep state. I think the the great historic achievement of the church committee is that it's it exposed that and imposed some rules for the first time and some oversight over it and provided some discipline for U.S. intelligence community and provided new, new it, it for the very first time forced 
the CIA, the FBI, the NSA to operate under the under the law. That clearly needs to be reformed again. We need to have some new reforms and some legislation, I would argue, to bring it more under more tighter reign. But I think that was the a great achievement of the church committee. And I think we do need a new church committee to do that again. I think that the big reasons that the big achievement of the church committee was that it was cleaning up the legacies of Alan Dulles at the CIA and J. Edgar Hoover at the FBI, because these were the men who really did make it, set them on the course to becoming a deep state groups. And we thankfully haven't had anybody like them in charge of those organizations since then. But, you know, the they set the foundations. So there needed to be reforms, you know, even after they were gone, there needed to be reforms. And, Tom, uh, I, 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 so, so I, I guess you're sparing William Casey from the. I hate the him. <laughs> no, I don't say I don't. I don't saying you hate him. I'm just I saying think, I think a... he's a crony. I think he was. I... This guy has no intelligence experience. Being I mean, like Alan Dulles, at least I think that at least Bill Casey told Reagan what he was doing. Alan Dulles sometimes didn't even tell Eisenhower what he was doing. Eisenhower knew a lot. He knew about MKUltra. He knew about the coups. He knew about the assassinations. But sometimes, like. Alan Dulles's sister. I think Casey was in the OSS, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. maybe. Yeah, yeah. He, but yeah, and all I know is that he was a financier of Republicans for years before he finally got that job. So it doesn't seem like he. I didn't know that. But yeah, Alan Dulles didn't tell Eisenhower everything. Jader Hoover certainly didn't tell everybody everything that he was doing. So once those two guys were gone, the worst of it was gone. But they set the tone, and you needed to kind of straighten it out and say, "Okay, people are paying attention to you now. Please behave." You know, that's that was the achievement. There needs to be more accountability, but it was a huge step forward. Okay. Well, listen, there's so much more that we could get into, but we've got to end it here. I would recommend to my listeners to please pick up this book. It's called The Last Honest Man. It really does read, it's a wonderful history of not just the church committee, but also the career of a, a very impressive senator in Frank Church. Don't always have to agree with him. He contained lots of contradictions at times, but it's a really it's really well worth the, the book. I think it's a fast read once you get into it. So congratulations on the both of you, Jim and Tom Risen, for a great book. And thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Really Absolutely. It was great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing. 